Let's this evening let's read from the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, Corinthians chapter one. Let's read the entire chapter and then we will go into the message for us. So first Corinthians chapter one verses one to thirty one. Let's hear the word of God. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas, but beyond that I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made, the, made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of no hope. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Thanks be to God for his holy word. Let's pray together, please. Our Father in heaven, we thank you once again for the blessing of the Lord's Day and what it means to us. A, a day set apart for remembering Christ Jesus our Savior and resurrection from his resurrection from the dead and what that means for us, the church, and what that means for the world and for all of history. And as we come to dwell on his on the perfection of Jesus Christ, we ask for ears to hear everything about who Jesus Christ has become to us who are being saved. I ask, Lord, for grace to describe Jesus well. I pray for grace for all who hear, for all who are listening, myself, for us to comprehend Jesus Christ as you want us to, to understand the mystery revealed to us about Christ Jesus our Savior. We ask all this in his name with thanksgiving. Amen. This evening, the, the question I want us to, to think about um, is this. How much do you need Jesus? And also, why do you need Jesus? Or to put it another way, what do you want from Jesus? What do you need from Jesus? What is Jesus to you? You know, the standard um, answer of one may put it that way for most Christians, is Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Right? That's a standard short answer. That's fine, of course. Um, what we have though today, this evening, I hope, brothers and sisters, is an opportunity through what is written in the Holy Scriptures to add more to that because of what God has written about Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior so that it may expand our thoughts about Jesus to the full extent that the Lord wants us to, to see. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the words that um, we have before us, was a man who went from negative 100% as far as Jesus was concerned, because he had a lot of things. He was learned, he was a Pharisee, he had a lot of things that he relied on for his righteousness, a self-righteousness, as to obedience of, to the law and so on. He went from that negative 100%, not needing Jesus at all, to a full 100%, where Jesus was everything to him. And the Apostle Paul writes that he considered all of those other things that initially made him discount Jesus completely. Now he considered all of those other things to be refuse, rubbish, dung, in light of what Jesus had become to him. Because of what Jesus had become to him, he put all of those things aside. He didn't use those things for 5% of what he needed and then let Jesus fill up the rest. No, he put all of those things aside and put Jesus Christ as 100%. And he wrote these words that we are reading today. Our central text for 
our passages from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30. I'll read it again. And because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. What a loaded verse. The way that I you know, try to capture this for us in the sermon title is Christ Jesus became our everything. Christ Jesus became our everything. The way Paul lists it here, four big things. Wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Paul's desire in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in, in writing this text. And my desire for you, church, dear Christian, is as we read this, we'll be reminded, encouraged to see Christ Jesus for all that he has become to us who are being saved. Nothing less. What does this text that we read mean? What is the Lord, the Holy Spirit, trying to tell us about Jesus by describing him in this way? Not in just a few short um, words like Jesus, our Lord and Savior, but actually listing out these four big things. The main point, as we are looking at this, is that in Christ Jesus, God has ensured that we have all of our spiritual needs met completely. And on top of that, actually, he has granted us spiritual blessings in Christ to have a full life of fellowship with God. That is why Paul could look to Jesus Christ as his 100%. You and I have spiritual needs. Paul had spiritual needs. Everyone who will ever live has spiritual needs. We have, of course, on, at the very least, we need to have our sins forgiven so that we can be reconciled to God. That is our most basic need, our most pressing need. But having been forgiven, you can think about, just in your mind, a situation where God could have forgiven those whom he is bringing to himself, forgiven them, but not brought them any much, not brought them much further than where he has actually brought his children. In the sense that, like the prodigal son, we could become servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, his slaves, and that would be all. That would be enough there. Ability to have some fellowship with God alone, with our sins forgiven, would be enough. But we know that God, being full of compassion, has given more than just the, the basic spiritual need. In fact, looking at the excellency of Jesus, one of the things that we would want, even if we have been forgiven, one of the things we would want is to be closer to Christ. And beyond showing us mercy, God in his lavish generosity, in his grace, abounding in steadfast love, has met our spiritual ones and given much more than we could even desire. So that the scripture describes it as more than anyone can imagine. More than any eye has seen. For example, that we can become the brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a big deal that he would be called our elder brother and that we would be brought, God would want to adopt us as sons. So he has granted also that we would not only be brothers and sisters to him, but the word of God tells us that we will reign with him. God did not have to do that. I guess what I'm saying is beyond our needs, God has, God has given to us some things that we could want and even things that we could not imagine that we would want. So we'll consider the, 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 the verse more closely, but first I want to uh, look a bit at the text, the, the context in which the text is located. The church in Corinth that Paul is writing to here is the church that Paul founded in Acts chapter 18 when he was staying in Corinth with his friends for a year and a half. The church is located in an influential city, Corinth. Corinth was a commercial hub 
And so because of that, the church had influences from the world. And we see that because the church with many problems, right? We know that it has disunity, immorality creeping in, misunderstanding and misuse of God's gifts. And as we see in Second Corinthians, some bad teachers, bad teaching. In fact, we know the Second Corinthians, First Corinthians, where and also another letter referred to. In fact, this church had so many problems that I think is the only church that we know that Paul had to write to not once, twice, but three times. But despite these problems, it was an influential church, and Paul commends this church, and we read about it, the connections of this church with other churches, connections with other leaders in the church. Even here in first chapter, we read connections with other leaders in the church, or Apollos, Peter. So it's a well-connected church. In fact, it is the kind of church that Conrad Mbewe would visit when he is in town. And it seems from the blessings that this church has received that the church and the people there were, were tempted to put their boast in some of this influence and the they knew. And in fact, because of the surrounding culture where the Greeks valued wisdom, they were tempted with their, with their trust and their boast in wisdom and knowledge. So it is into this kind of confusion and temptation that the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write clearly to put things right. And so they, the church in every Christian must find our all in Christ. Christ is our only boast. Boasting boasting is a common theme. Our central text is sandwiched between some verses about boasting. If we look at verse 29, it says or even from verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. That's the first thing about boasting, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And then we see our text here, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And then the closing verse, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, we look at the um, the, the, there are many other verses about boasting here. The point that Paul wants to make is that as choosing what is low and despised in the world so that we may boast in Christ. Instead of boasting in anything else in the presence of God, boast in the Lord because Jesus is everything from start to finish for the Christian. Paul is emphatic about the perfection and sufficiency of Christ in this chapter. Even before Central text. You see here, if we look through First Corinthians chapter one, right? Greetings. He starts to emphasize that Jesus is everything, and that everything can be found in Jesus. From verse four, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in Him. Do you see the the superlatives in every way enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge. Really, in way in all speech, all knowledge. To what the Greeks that you can you can have some speech and knowledge understanding from Christ, but you need to add some other things, some other wisdom from the world. And Paul is saying, you know, everything is found here in Christ. If we continue from verse six, even as the testimony as Christ, of, about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. Again, look at the extent of this here. The church is not lacking in any gift. Sometimes we feel like, oh, if, if we only had this one thing. 
But Paul is emphasizing here, in Christ we have everything. He says, not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Guiltless, another superlative. You know, even in our court of law, in our legal system, when someone is tried for an offense, when the judge is concluding, the conclusion is either guilty or not guilty. The court never says that someone is guiltless, innocent. It's just that you have not been found guilty of one specific thing. It seems even our court of law recognizes that sin abounds everywhere. And yet here, Paul is saying that the way that God looks at us in Christ is guiltless because of Christ Jesus. The next few verses, we won't read those. They're about divisions in the church. But I just want to highlight, you know, one of the reasons why sometimes we have divisions is because we don't find, in every, we don't, we don't find our everything in Christ. And so we want to find some of our identity in a teacher or in something that we do, some specific way that we can carve for ourselves where we are better than our brothers and sisters. After talking about the divisions, Paul launches into the contrast between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. In the, among the Greeks, wisdom is how some people were seeking to be distinguished, to separate themselves, to be clever, to have knowledge. And the scripture argues that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. If you are relying on anything other than Christ, if your sufficiency is from how clever, how wise you are in spiritual matters, anything apart from Christ, you are just like these Greeks. It is better to rely on the foolishness of God demonstrated in the cross than in humanistic wisdom. God is pleased. God delights in the foolishness of the cross. And he delights to save us through the foolishness of preaching, simple preaching. God is delighted in this because he delighted in Christ. Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God to save. We don't need to add anything else from the human point of view. No clever gimmicks is what Paul says. So when we get to our main text in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 13, the first thing we read, and because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. Before he even mentions the things that Christ has become to us, he says, and because of him, because of God, remember the emphasis that salvation is of God. Salvation belongs to God. And so all that we are about to read it's not because we have found it in ourselves to find Christ. It's because God from start to finish has accomplished this in Christ. And so let's look at these four things. That would be our, our sermon for today. So fair, the first one is the wisdom from God. Among the Greeks, the word for wisdom is Sophia, from which we get this you know, sophistication. Where's like sophistication? The idea of being clever, intelligent. And Paul is contrasting this kind of idea of the Greeks against the wisdom of God. In fact, throughout the scriptures, the Bible contrasts wisdom and folly. And biblically, wisdom is fearing God and being foolish or folly is behaving as if God does not exist. Right? Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And Proverbs, the wisdom literature continues, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord, Yahweh, is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1.20, wisdom cries aloud in the street. The, the scripture compares the wisdom of fearing God with the foolishness of forsaking the path of uprightness. 
From the Bible, wisdom is all about the fear of God and living uprightly before God. The opposite of wisdom is wickedness and evil. In the New Testament, we have even a clearer explanation for us. Um, James chapter 1, if we can look there for a minute. James chapter 1, James encourages the saints from verse 5 in James chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives it to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So if you lack this fear of God, this wisdom, James is saying, ask God and he will give it to you. James talks about wisdom even more in chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. James 3, 13, he writes, Who is wise among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. God's wisdom versus the wisdom of the world. But friends, don't the important thing as we, we look at what Paul is describing as wisdom from God, don't think that this wisdom is something that God gives anywhere separately outside of your union believer with Christ. Because the teaching on wisdom in the New Testament is that all wisdom is found in Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 2 emphasizes this for us. Paul writes there, Colossians chapter 2, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. And the scripture records this for those believers and for all believers for all time. The mystery is... Christ, which is Christ, verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All wisdom is found in Christ. All wisdom, all knowledge hidden in Christ. Don't, the application is don't try to know God outside of Christ. Don't seek heavenly wisdom outside of Christ. Christ is not a starting point after which you try to pursue your own study and become well-versed in scripture to know God. If you are not always turning back to Christ in your study, then be careful. Be careful if your study is making you more and more confident in what you know. Even to the point where you look down on your fellow brother or sister. You hear something about their passion for Christ and you ask, but are they reformed? Are they truly reformed? You know, because we are reformed. Do they know the doctrines of, of grace? Are they Baptist? James here, in the verse we read, James speaks of a wisdom that is gentle and open to reason. If your wisdom is making you puffed up, brash, quarrelsome, unable to reason, slow to hear, quick to respond, quick to criticize, then you need to check, my brother, my sister, that you are not operating in a wisdom that is, as James writes, earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Let's pray for the wisdom that is above, the heavenly wisdom that is in Christ. In Christ, God has made Jesus to be the wisdom from God. That wisdom should be making us Christ-like 
if indeed it is the heavenly wisdom that is hidden in Christ. So, that, so that's the first, um, the first uh, word here that Paul uses to describe what Christ has become to us, wisdom from God. The next word, as we go back to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, is righteousness. Christ Jesus, who became to us, first, wisdom from God, secondly, righteousness. What is righteousness? God is holy and just, a holy God, and righteousness means being in line with that character of God. In the Old Testament, the word used to describe righteousness is Similar to the word for straightness, being straight. This is righteousness, being straight in line with God. And you know, there are two ways that we, every human being seeks to attain righteousness. One is to try to do this on our own, our own works, our own goodness, on the basis of what we do, achieving a self-righteousness, trying to obey God's law. Is this possible? No, the scripture makes it clear that there is none righteous, no not one. Psalm 14, Psalm 53. There is none righteous, no one who does God. It is impossible for any man, woman, child to be right with God because of what we do, because of our own righteousness. Why? Because we are born in sin and in iniquity. And therefore, from the very beginning of our lives, we are unrighteous. And righteousness is such that once you fail, once you drop back from being in line with God, being righteous, you can never get back again because you are already unrighteous. And God is perfectly holy. So what is the solution? Romans chapter chapter 3 quotes the Psalms I have mentioned to emphasize there is none righteous. But then in verse 21 of that glorious passage, we read Romans chapter 3 verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. This is how Christ Jesus has become to us not only the wisdom of God revealing to us how we may be right right with God, revealing who God is, but Jesus Christ becomes also actually our righteousness to bring us to God. The picture of righteousness in the Bible is one of clothing. That our own clothes, our own self-righteousness is filthy rags. But Christ clothes us in his pure, spotless righteousness. This is what justification means. This is what the saints gathered around the throne in Revelation are wearing. The white robes of the glorious righteousness of the sinless life of Jesus Christ. And that is our own attire, friends. That's our dress code that we are looking forward to on, on the last day. John Wesley, in one of his hymns, describes this. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Miss flaming worlds in these arrayed with joy shall I lift up my head. When all is going down in flames, my friend, if you have put your faith in Christ, you'll be able to keep your head high. Because we won't be standing there in our own robes, our own self-righteousness, which makes us naked anyway, but in the spotless righteousness of Christ. I remember on Wednesday, uh, Pastor Adola at SCCC was talking about the covering of fig leaves that Adam and Eve created for themselves in the garden. 
And since then, we have all been trying to clothe ourselves. Everyone who is born seeks righteousness. But in this type of clothing, that will not stand on that day. John Wesley continues in his hymn. He says, Bold shall I stand in thy great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. Guilt and shame that Adam had. And then in another stanza, When from the dust of death I rise to claim my mansion in the skies, even then this shall be all my plea. Jesus has lived, has died for me. That shall be all my plea. But friends, for this to work, listen carefully, it has to be all your plea. Don't make it half or 90 80, 95%, 99% even. Don't make that part, Jesus has died for me, and the other part you leave for yourself and say, I'm reformed, that's what justifies me. Don't make it partly, almost all the way, Jesus has died for me, but the rest, oh, I abstain from alcohol, so I'm justified. Don't make it partly, or partly Jesus has set me on the way, justified me to some extent, but a little bit is because I have my quiet time, I read my Bible, I pray every day. And so in a little sense, you feel like you are justified before God. I urge you to rest all of your justification and righteousness on Christ, on Christ alone. Every other thing is sinking sand. So those are the first two words here, friends. Wisdom from God, righteousness. And Paul continues, the third word we look at is sanctification. Christ, Jesus, became our sanctification. What is sanctification? Where are our catechized uh, children and the reformed uh, adults in the room? Because I know we, we should have a definition for sanctification, right? What is sanctification? Justification we have talked about. It is, it is God's forgiven sinners. If we look at it in the children's catechism. Forgiven sinners, treating them as if they had never sinned. Then what is sanctification? It is God making sinners holy in heart and conduct. You can add to that, it is, in a well-known definition, it is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, becoming like Christ, and enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Sanctification is the separation of God's people from sin and impurity and pollution, and a dedication of his people unto holiness. It is the means by which God's redeemed people can share in the divine nature because God is of purer eyes than to look upon evil. Friends, the commandment to be holy did not end in the Old Testament. God, it's not as if the God of the New Testament does not care about holiness. Sanctification. When God saves us, he sets us apart and sanctifies us in Christ. That's true. But throughout our lives, we know we have the presence of sin bothering us. And so God works progressively in us to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ. And finally, at the end, in glory, the scripture promises us that God will complete our sanctification, making us perfect and blameless. This is where we see the grace of God. You see, God is not content to simply justify us. His ultimate aim is to glorify us in Christ through this sanctifying process. It's an amazing, amazing picture of God's love. As I said earlier, he could have brought us into the kingdom just as slaves, servants. But he has determined that he would make us his bride, the bride of Christ. As I look upon the church today, this is the bride of Christ. We are already his bride. And we find in Ephesians chapter 5, in the middle of commandments, those of us who are husbands, 
current and, and future, he has commandments here for husbands in verse 25. And there's a description of the church there. If we can turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. A beautiful description of what God is aiming to do. And he writes, Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And there you see, you see there the principle of sanctification, the ultimate aim of Christ in giving his life for us, his church, his bride, that he might sanctify her. How? By washing of water with the word. Even as we are doing now, hearing the word preached, in our own reading, personal devotions, reading of the word, Bible study, hearing from his word and being cleansed continually. To what end? So that he might present the church to himself, present us to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without any blemish. This is how we'll be on that wedding day, at the wedding supper of the Lamb, friends. We'll be in splendor, a bride without a single spot or stain. And the scripture adds, I don't know what else could be added, or any such thing. A pure bride, perfect. In this way, we are different from any other bride that you have ever seen, friends. Humanly speaking, look, no matter how much a bridegroom may say that he loves his bride just as she is on the wedding day, we all know that there are some imperfections. Right? Otherwise, why is it that in the morning the mother and the aunt will call in the best makeup person in town to come and spend a long time painting and patching and covering up things here and there? It's because of all of those spots that make hair less than perfect. Um, in that makeup thing, there's even something called a concealer. What do you think a concealer is for? Yeah, they're serious. There are lots of, lots of things that are not as they seem. Actually, my, my, my dear reformed brothers, yeah, when you look at, when you look at uh, a woman, my, my wife and I were, uh, my wife was updating me on the late, latest artificial things that you, um, women can put on. When you look at women, especially the women of the world, not everything that you see is real. And what you see may not be what you get. So friends, back to the main point here. The, the point being that any other bride that we see has spots, stains, wrinkles, and what the scripture calls any such thing. But the, the Lord is determined to make us a pure bride, a bride that has no spot, no wrinkles. Our sanctification is meant to be complete. The Bible uses words like blameless, complete in Christ. Christ Jesus has become our everything for this end. Wisdom from God being revealed to us, our righteousness, our sanctification completely to the end. And finally, the last word that we have here in this word, redemption. Redemption. All these words that we have looked at, looked at this uh, evening, this afternoon, Christ Jesus has become the wisdom from God. It's great to have the wisdom of God revealed to us. Otherwise, we'll be in darkness. Righteousness. Amazing, because we cannot be right with God apart from Christ. 
sanctification. We cannot make it on our own. And so it is a comfort, a great comfort to hear that Christ Jesus has become our sanctification, that he is our sanctification. It is God who is working this out for us. But as we come to this last word, for me, friends, this is the sweetest, redemption. The idea of redemption is to buy back. Right? We have been sold into slavery by our sin in Adam. And Jesus Christ on the cross pays for our sin and redeems us, buys us back. And we read the glorious words in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, repeated in Colossians. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Being bought back, not as a part payment, but a full, complete payment. Reminds me of an um, illustration that our brother Eliezer used um, in the last time he was preaching at our, at our church, SGCC, on the, on the resurrection of Christ being the evidence, the indication that God has accepted the full payment for our sins. We have that confirmation. We have a full redemption, a full atonement, a forgiveness fully for all sins. You know, I love the way that we have some of these acronyms to help us remember um, some of these doctrines, like TULIP, which um, you have here on your, on your wall. But I have to admit that sometimes some of the words can be confusing. And one of the ones that I want to pick on, forgive me for being so bold as to pick on uh, an acronym that has been so helpful for many, but the, the second, the third um, one here, limited atonement. Yes, we understand what it means. It means the atonement of Christ is for his people alone. But as such a short phrase, sometimes I admit that it can be confusing. It can, it can, it can actually limit our understanding of what Christ has done, of what God has done in Christ. You see, the atonement, in, a, in one sense, of Christ is not limited. In one sense, it is a full atonement. It is an abounding atonement. Let me explain it to you this way. When I look at the atonement of Christ, the payment for our sins, if it was anything less than what it actually is, then for my sins alone, knowing just knowing myself, I would use up all of that atonement and there will be nothing left for any of you. It has to be an overflowing atonement. This is why the book of Hebrews tells us the blood of bulls and goats could not atone. And so we needed the perfect blood of Christ, the perfect atonement. It is a forgiveness that is, as I said, for all sins, past, present, future. I love that part of the hymn, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, everything nailed to his cross. Christ Jesus, wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Why has God made Christ Jesus become our everything, as I put it in the title of this sermon? Why, why is he all of these things? Our wisdom from God, righteousness, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Well, because you and I need him that much. He has to become all of these things. There is no revelation of God to you and I without Christ Jesus. 
You cannot have the mysteries of God revealed to you outside of Christ. You would grow up around in darkness. You would be in the negatives. But on the other hand, it's 100% now that the mystery of God is revealed in Christ. He's the full wisdom of God. He's the full revelation of God. Why do you need the righteousness of Christ? Because of your filthy rags. Because of my filthy rags. They will not do, they will not cover anything on that day when we meet our creator. If you have not come to Christ for this dressing, this proper clothing, my friends, I urge you to run to Christ. Because there is a day coming when every other clothing will be taken off and we will all stand naked before God. And the only ones who will be covered are those who have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Why is Christ your sanctification? Can't you just start out from the point of regeneration? I'm born again and then you make it on your own, working out your salvation to the end, obeying, making sure you live well. Well, you've been forgiven. Why can't you just live well by yourself? No, you cannot. God must work in you through the power of the Holy Spirit and he must purify even your good works in Christ to make them acceptable to God. Why do you need the redemption of Christ? For that one is easy. There is nothing else that could pay for our sins. Nothing could wash away our sins. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. In the end, Christ Jesus has to become our everything, 100%, because that is what we need. Let's turn to Christ for all our needs, friends, in this week that is coming, because he has already become our everything, if you have put your hope in him. May God deliver us from thinking that we can ever fulfill any part of those needs. God has made him everything to us. If we had a need for only 95%, that we could take care of 5%, then God would have made Jesus a 95% savior. But as it is, we needed a great high priest who is perfect in every way. And that is indeed what we have. What a glorious truth is revealed to us here in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. From 28, actually, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may, might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen.